we have been talking about them. And them are those difficult people in our lives. Those, it, it's hard to work with them or for them. It's hard to be friends with them. It's hard to be in a relationship with them. It's hard to be married to them. And, and so far, we've talked about needy people. Not just financially needy, you know, we've talked about those chronically, consistently, overly dependent on other people, people. And we've talked about control freaks, people who try to manipulate or control uh, other people. And the funny thing was, we didn't even get out of church until we had three examples of that. We had three anonymous notes, three anonymous uh, connect cards with some complaints on them. Um, I don't know what they were. I don't even look at things that come anonymously. I figure no name, no problem, but that's a tool in the manipulator's toolbox, an anonymous note. And the one thing that we've said over and over is that all of us, all of us probably are or have been a them for somebody. At some time, some place, one time or another, we're all them. We've all been needy at one time or another. We've all been a manipulator. We've all tried to control other people or control situations. And so we had best keep this foremost in our minds, that God loves them. God loves them. And in his word, he shows us how to love them and how to care for them. And yes, how to put up with them, but how to minister to them as well. And so today we're talking about hypocrites. Hypocritical people. I, I wonder, how, how many of us know uh, a hypocrite? Somebody talks a good game, but they don't live it out. Raise your hand up high. Right? You, a Christian says one thing, does another. Okay. Now, how many of you are sitting next to that hypocrite? Don't raise your hand. We don't want to fight breaking out in church among the hypocrites today. But far and away, the number one criticism that I hear from non-Christians about followers of Jesus and about the church is that they're all just a bunch of hypocrites. They're all just a bunch of hypocrites. We've all experienced that. We, we've all had somebody that we've kind of been working on, right? We want them to be our guest at church. We, we're kind of preparing to invite them to come and be with us. Or, or maybe we're just excited about our church and we're talking about it. We're, you know, we, we're excited about things that are going on and so our church comes up in conversation and somebody says... Well, I don't go to church because there's too many hypocrites. Well, I want to help you today, okay? So here's what you do next time that happens. You just give that person your sweetest smile, and in the most gentle and loving tone of voice that you can manage, you say, please don't let that stop you. There's always room for one more. All of us are them sometimes. The reality is there's a little bit of hypocrite in all of us and a lot of hypocrite in some of us. So let's start by making sure we understand the term, build from that understanding and talk about them here today. The Greek word that's translated hypocrite, that's the word that, that Jesus would have used, Paul would have used, Peter and John would have used that word, is hypocrites. In fact, if you put them side by side, they look extremely similar. And that's because our English word is just a transliteration. They, they just took it 
the way it looked in Greek and made it you know, fit English a little better, but it's basically just a, a transliteration. But maybe you've seen the masks, right? When people talk about hypocrisy, sometimes those, those Greek masks, the tragedy and comedy masks will come out. Those masks were worn by the actors. See, hypocrite, Hippocrates means actor. And in, in Jesus' time, they wore those masks for several reasons, one of which is that um, acting was about as low class a profession as you could be in. I mean, there was maybe you know, one that was lower class, but that you were on that same level <laughs> with the lowest class professions. And so to conceal your identity, you would use a mask when you were on stage. But also, to, so that, that um, just a handful of actors could play many parts in a play, they would use masks so that the same person could play different parts. It also helped the audience kind of in the days before amplification of sound, modern stagecraft, they could kind of identify who the characters were and what, they, what their role was. But the bottom line was that they used these masks. The actors of the day concealed their identity. They used these masks so that they could pretend to be something that they weren't or somebody that they were not. And Jesus, our loving, gentle Savior, don't miss this now, he was never, ever soft on hypocrisy. He just wasn't. There are a couple of verses that really capture the whole issue of hypocrisy, something Jesus said. Now, the, the scriptures that we're using, you're free, you certainly look them up on your Bible, your tablet, your phone, however you... You choose to do that. You can follow along on screen. Use the, uh, the uh, message insert that's in your bulletin. But In Matthew 15, Jesus is calling out the religious leaders of the day, the people we would call the Pharisees. He's, he's talking to them about their Phariseeism, their hypocrisy. And he says this in Matthew 15, verses 7 and 8. You hypocrites! Now, you know, way to soften the blow there, Jesus. Way to kind of, you know, work up to, you know, you should be nice at first and then work in the criticism and then close with something nice, right? That's what we were, how we were taught to, to do it. But Jesus just says, you hypocrites, Isaiah, the prophet, was right about you when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In other words, they talk the talk, but they do not walk the walk. They say one thing, they profess one thing, but their hearts really are far from God and they live in a way that doesn't match up to what they say. Jesus says they're like, you're like actors, holding up a mask, pretending to be somebody that you're really not. Vicki and I had a friend in Georgia, Pam Weir. She's with the Lord now, but she used to tell a story that always cracked me up. I, I, I think I've told it here before. She was in her car driving on the main highway through LaGrange, Georgia. That's where we lived. She saw a car with a bumper sticker that said, Honk if you love Jesus. Now, those, those haven't really been around for a while, but in the 70s, those were kind of a big deal. You would see a lot of those bumper stickers. So Pam said, you know, she loved Jesus. So she just gave a, a friend a little beep beep as she, uh, as she passed him there on the low side. And she looked over just in time to see an older man give her the universal one-finger signal that means I did not appreciate what you just did. <laughs> he wasn't telling her she was number one, that's for sure. <laughs> now, here's the deal, though, seriously. If you're wearing a New Hope t-shirt, 
or you're driving a car with like a Christian bumper sticker or a license plate on it, uh, how about don't flip people off, okay? <laughs> Let's just make that a rule. Can we, we don't have very many church rules. Let's make that one. It does a lot of damage to the cause of Christ. But the reality is those, that those people are out there, aren't they? Those people, sometimes we're them. Saying one thing and living another, I guarantee you, wherever you go, you're going to run across Christian hypocrite. It could be that guy at work. He's got his Bible on his desk. He's always talking about our church this and our church that. And the next thing you know, he's using profanity, making inappropriate remarks about his female co-workers, just like everybody else. Or maybe it's that kid at school, you know, the, the super spiritual kid, the leader of the youth group. He's in all the Christian clubs. and He's cheating his way through his classes and partying on the weekends. We know that kid. Or it could be that woman who just talks about everybody. Oh, sometimes she disguises it as a prayer request. We really ought to pray for that, sister. You know, she's got this going on in her life. Did you know this was happening in her life? But sometimes she doesn't even bother with that. She just gets one or two people who are willing to, to listen to her, kind of calls, cuts them out of the herd, and takes them off in a corner, and, and they whisper over there, tongues just flying. Or maybe it's that guy who's always spouting spiritual talk. I mean, you can't even have a decent conversation with him. Right? You can't even say, how are you? Oh, I'm blessed, brother. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Glory to God. It's a blessed day the Lord has given us. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. He goes home with that same mouth. He verbally abuses his family. It's hypocrisy. So now the question is, how do we deal with it? How do we deal with those hypocritical people? Do we have a role? Should we get involved in the lives of, of Christians who are dealing with this kind of stuff? Or do we just keep our distance? Well, there are a couple of extremes I think we need to avoid. One extreme is the hands-off approach. In our culture, tolerance has become basically an idol. We worship at the idol of tolerance. And so a lot of people would say, a lot of Christians would say, hey, none of my business what they do. Right? I mean, as long as it makes them happy, it's not my thing. It's their thing. I wouldn't do it. But, you know, it's, if that's your thing, go for it. What a complete abdication of our responsibility toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. Where in that attitude is, is the sense of, of, of one Christian helping another Christian who might be struggling, who might be caught in the grip of a sin, who maybe wants a way out, who needs someone to help them get out? And can, can I just say, what's funny, somebody told me a few weeks ago that they had noticed that when I say, can I just say, I usually lower the hammer. I hate to be so predictable. But you know what? These days, if you ever tell somebody that they're doing something wrong, that, that they're not following God, or that they might just maybe possibly could be sinning, <gasps> why, you've just done the most horrible thing you can do to some other person. You're worse than Hitler. I mean, seriously. 
They'll get all puffed up and all offended and they'll say, well, the Bible says... What? Two words. Judge not. The Bible says judge not. Man, do you know that is, that's the words from the Bible that everybody knows, Christian or not. Everybody knows a little tiny piece of Matthew 7, 1, where Jesus says, judge not, that you be not judged. But not very many people know what it means. Because too often people think that Jesus is saying, you can't ever tell anybody they're wrong. You can't ever tell a person that they're doing something wrong. You, you can't tell someone that their, their lifestyle or their choice doesn't line up with what the Bible says. You, you can't do that. Judge not. You know what they miss? They miss that Jesus says that in chapters Matthew 7, verse 1. And five verses later, he calls his enemies pigs and dogs. So whatever he meant, it probably didn't mean that you could never tell somebody they're doing something wrong or something immoral. Jesus was not saying that we can't use discernment, that we can't recognize when somebody is doing something that, that's uh, immoral and unhealthy. But we do have to be careful because we like to think the worst about other people. We like to compare ourselves with other people and make ourselves look good at, at their expense. Well, I'm, you know, I'm not good, but I'm better than they are. We like to size people up quick and, and think we've got them figured out. So what did Jesus mean? I mean, what does that mean, judge not? You, you're telling me I, somebody tells me I'm doing something wrong or that something in my life's out of line with the Scripture, I can't get all puffy and, and say, judge not? You ever notice some people say, oh, judge not? Say it like in a real judgmental way. You ever notice that? Here's what I think Jesus really meant. Again, he wasn't saying don't tell people when they're wrong. Don't tell people that when their life is measured by the standard of God's word, they're coming up short in an area. Now, I think what, what Jesus meant was don't assume. Don't make assumptions. Don't assume you know all the facts after hearing one side of the story. Don't assume that a person is guilty just because somebody accused them. Don't assume that the divorced person is responsible, is to blame for the divorce. Don't assume the single mom isn't following Jesus. Don't assume that the homeless guy is less of a man or less of a Christian than you are. Don't assume that you'd be a better mom. Don't assume that, that bad kids mean bad parents. Don't assume that the rich are stingy or that the poor are lazy or that you know what all of them are like after you've met one or two of their kind. Don't assume you know why and how they got trapped in their addiction. Don't assume their faith isn't genuine, their forgiveness isn't sincere. Don't assume that God can't change them. Don't assume that God can't love them. And don't assume that he can't change you or that he can't love you. 
Well, there's another extreme. We might call it the hyper hands-on. We got the hands-off at one extreme and the hyper hands-on on the other extreme. It's that confrontational, judgmental nitpicking of everything that a person does, zeroing in on small things. Well, you don't use the right version of the Bible. Your church doesn't worship the right way. Well, you, you wear that, or you didn't wear this, or you listen to that station, or you don't listen to this other station. It's, it's confrontation without love. Can I just tell you this? If you don't love somebody, you've got no business confronting them anyway. Check your heart. If you don't love somebody, leave them alone. Oh, boy. Everybody's like, hey, yeah, I'm glad I heard that today. There is, there is very little that causes more harm to the cause of Christ than hypocritical, judgmental Christians breathing down somebody's neck all the time telling them you're doing this wrong and this wrong and that wrong and this wrong. Neither extreme is right and neither extreme is healthy. What we've got to find is a middle place, someplace in between. But let's be real clear about something. Okay, Make sure you hear this. If we're Christian... And there's a non-Christian who's not acting like a Christian. Are we supposed to correct and confront them? Everybody do this. No. No, we're not. We don't have any right to confront a non-Christian about non-Christian behavior. Why? Because they're not Christians. We shouldn't, what we need to do is get over expecting Christian behavior from non-Christian people. Our lives will be a lot easier and a lot less stress filled if we would do that the only responsibility we have to somebody who's not a Christian is to love them is to, to, to love them toward God we don't confront their behavior we love them toward God we, we don't judge them we love, love, love them toward God man if you start out trying to reach someone for Jesus by attacking their behavior, they will close the door on you every single time. It doesn't work. But now listen. The Bible is full of examples where a, where, where a Christian will confront another Christian who's struggling with sin to lovingly bring them back to that right place with God. That is in here. That is in the Bible, in the Old Testament. That's why God raised up the prophets. Man, every prophet in the Old Testament, God raised, raised them up to speak to the people on his behalf, and every one of them had a message that was some variation of this. Oh, yeah, you say you love God, but your actions say otherwise. You say you love God, but you're worshiping idols. You say you love God and you're involved in the most horrible behaviors. You need to stop it before God destroys you. Repent and get right with God. That was the message of the prophets. Yeah, it was happy days when the prophets showed up in town because you knew that's what you were going to get. You get over in the New Testament. We already, we already looked at Jesus. Looking the Pharisees right in the eye. You hypocrites calling his enemies pigs and dogs. 
In Matthew chapter 6, three times, Jesus calls out something, calls out the hypocrites, and tells his followers, don't do this like they do. Don't pray like they do, just so other people will hear their eloquent prayers and go, oh, what a great prayer he is. Jesus says, don't do that. It's, it's hypocrisy. Jesus says, when you give, don't, don't give to be seen. Man, don't put your name on a brick or a gold leaf or put a brass plaque on something you give to the church. That's hypocrisy. When you fast, you don't walk around going, oh, I'm so hungry, but I'm fasting. That's how spiritual I am. Apparently, you aren't fasting. Okay? Jesus says it's hypocrisy. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks about Peter. Now, now, we, now get this. This is walk on water, Peter. Right? This is Peter the rock. This is Peter the, I'm going to build my church on your rock, your foundation, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is Peter who preached the first gospel sermon after the death of Christ. And Peter's in Antioch, and he's just enjoying himself with the Gentile Christians, those Christians who had no Jewish background, so they didn't obey Jewish dietary laws, and they didn't keep Jewish rituals, and they didn't obey Jewish laws. And, and Peter was just enjoying being with them until the Jewish Christians from Jerusalem showed up, and then he distances himself from them. He won't have anything to do with them. He won't eat with them. He won't hang out with them. And he tells that Jerusalem crowd, yeah, I don't, I don't even hang out with those guys. They're uncircumcised. Which I wish I'd have been there. I'd have went, how do you know? <laughs> and listen, Paul wasn't having it. Paul says, I got in his face. I got in his face and I said, who do you think you are? You're being a hypocrite. You need to knock it off. That's a loose translation, but that's basically what he meant. Knock off the hypocrisy. I don't care who you are in Jesus' group of followers. You're being a hypocrite. You need to stop. See, the truth is, Christians, we do have a call on our lives to help other Christians who are caught in sin and struggling with sin. It's not just the pastor's job. It's not just the elder's job. It's all of us. But please listen. We've got to make sure we do it in the right way, with the right motivation, right? We've got to make sure we do it in a way that is healthy, in a way that builds people up and doesn't tear them down, in a way that honors and glorifies God. So today I want to give us three things. Three things to remember when we prepare to confront sin and hypocrisy in someone's lives, in someone else's life. If you're taking notes, you want to write these down. Here's the first one, number one. Remember that the goal is restoration. The goal is restoration. It's not to kick somebody out of the church, not to excommunicate somebody, not to shun somebody. The goal is to restore them to their relationship with God. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul writes this, Dear brothers and sisters, if, any, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Some translations say you who are spiritual should restore them 
with gentleness. <laughs> but we struggle with that. That's a struggle for us. I, I don't know if it's bad role modeling. I don't know if it's poor preaching or poor teaching. But there are quite a few holier-than-thou judgmental Christians that when they go to confront someone, their goal is to be right. I'm right and you're wrong. Or their goal is to make someone feel ashamed and small. Oh, my, 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 just look what you've done to your life. But our goal is not to be right. Our goal is not to make sure that that somebody shows the proper amount of remorse or contrition. Our goal is to love them back onto the right path, back into a relationship with God. And it's done with gentleness and humility. Paul is using medical language here. And what he's talking about is a physician setting a broken bone. Now, I don't know if you've ever had that happen. I don't know if you've ever broken a bone and a doctor had to set it, but if you have had it or you have had a child maybe that, that had to have that done, you know it is an excruciatingly painful process, but it is essential. It's important. It has to be done. For the, otherwise, you could lose the use of the limb. In that day, the day before modern surgery and before antibiotics, you could lose the limb. You could lose your life. A broken leg could mean, you know, we might as well put you down. But when it was done right, and when it was done with gentleness, it made all the difference in the world. It was the difference between life and death. That's what we're talking about here. Our goal is to see that other person whole and restored in their relationship with God. And you know, if God uses us to do that in someone's life, Here's what the scripture says about that. It's in James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. It says, My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. That's brothers and sisters lovingly confronting each other always with the goal of restoration. And here's something else for us to remember when we prepare to confront sin and hypocrisy in someone else's life. Number two, we remember to confront with caution. Confront with caution. We have to be very careful. Let's look at all of, of Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. I left uh, a sentence off. I want to put it back and put it in its context. Now, we've read this part before. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Be careful. Be cautious. Watch yourself. Watch out for yourself. Paul said it this way to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. Doesn't it happen to us that way a lot? Man, we kind of seem like we've got it going on. Right? I'm reading my Bible every day and 
and, and I've got this Christian book that I'm reading, and, and I've got my uh, car radio set to the Christian station, and I, you know, I'm not, and I, I'm eating uh, shredded wheat for breakfast instead of Captain Crunch, and I just, in every area of life, it seems like I am victorious, and timber, boom, it happens. Paul says, use caution. If you're going to reach out into the life of another person, if you're going to try to help them and confront them, be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Listen, when we confront someone else, we're vulnerable in some areas, right? One area that we're vulnerable in is pride because we're right. We feel right, don't we? I mean, we're here to confront someone who's, who's doing something wrong, so we're the godly ones. And if we're not careful, what is it that comes after pride? Pride comes before a wrong. Pride does not come before a fall. According to the Bible, it's much, much worse. Proverbs 16, 18 said, says pride goes before what? Destruction. We're not just talking about a fall, a stumble, a mess up. We're talking about destruction. Haughtiness or arrogance goes before a fall, but pride goes before destruction. And then there's another thing. If we feel passionate enough to confront a sin... There's a reason that we feel so passionate about that. Maybe it's something that we're drawn to. Maybe it's something that's a temptation for us, something we have to battle, something we've been impacted by. We've got to be careful. Now, I'm not saying if we go to, to help someone, confront someone about a, a, a drug addiction, that three months later we'll end up you know, being illegal drug smugglers. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we've got to be careful. Proceed with caution because, listen, there is no greater victory Satan could have than to cause us to fall into the same sin we've just confronted somebody else with. But it happens. How many, I mean, and more than I care to think about, pastors who started out doing marriage counseling, maybe with a couple, and then he was doing marriage counseling just with the wife, and then before you know it, him and that person, that lady, committing adultery, they're caught in an affair. I've just heard of it happening more times than I care to admit. If we're going to confront, we've got to be careful. We always do it with the goal of restoration. Our attitude is, I, I, I love you, I'm here to help, I want you to be right with God, and we confront with caution, being careful, so that we don't fall. And then there's a third thing for us to remember when we prepare to confront sin and hypocrisy in someone's life. Number three, remember to check yourself first. Last week I said this. I said one of the cautions throughout this series is let's not get too zeroed in on them, okay? Let's not make this all about somebody else, somebody out there, somebody other than us, right? Because just a few moments ago we said all of us, are a them sometimes, right? We can all be hypocritical. I, let's take can out of there. We all are hypocritical. It's just so hard for us to see it. Jesus, one time, Jesus was wailing on the Pharisees for being hypocrites, and he called them blind guides. He said, you're leading people in the wrong direction because you're blind. You can't even see it. 
It's difficult to see hypocrisy in the mirror. It's tough. And there's no better, more tragic example than in an incident that took place in the life of David when he was king of Israel. I'm not going to read all these scriptures to you this morning. Um, you can look, at, look them up. It's in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 where this story is told. But the Bible says it was the time of year when kings go off to war. Only King David didn't go off to war. He stayed on. He was supposed to be at war, but he wasn't. And so because he wasn't where he was supposed to be, he saw something he wasn't supposed to see. Because he saw something he wasn't supposed to see, he did something he wasn't supposed to do. He's up on the roof of the palace looking out over the city and he sees a young woman taking a bath. Now what he should have done is go back downstairs. Oh, I'm not supposed to be up here right now. And he goes back downstairs, but he doesn't do that either. He stays on the roof and he watches. And he sends his people, go get that woman, bring her to me. And he commits adultery with her and she gets pregnant. And so now he's trapped. Now he's about to be exposed. But some information comes to him that helps him out. This woman, her name was Bathsheba. Her husband's name was Uriah. And Uriah was in David's army. But just think about the irony of this. The kings were supposed to be out to war, but David wasn't at war. But this woman whom he sinned with, her husband was at war. He was where he was supposed to be. So David uh, hatches this plan. He, goes, he tells his people, go get Uriah and bring him home from the battle. Tell him the king is giving you a little vacation. Come home. Spend some time at home with your wife. You've been gone for a few weeks, few months, wouldn't it be nice to be back at home and hopefully things would progress as David expected them to progress and the finger of blame could not be pointed at him but Uriah refused even to go home. He spent his first night back sleeping outside the palace at the king's gate. When David heard about it, he called Uriah in. He said, um, what's wrong with you? Uriah said, how can I go home and eat and drink and sleep in the bed with my wife when the Lord's army is sleeping out in an open field? David doesn't have an answer for that. So he hatches plan B. He tells his, his advisors, he tells his men, take Uriah back to the army Put him on the front lines at the fiercest fighting and at the heat, the, the fever pitch of the battle. Pull everyone back away from him and leave him exposed. And then, you know, whatever happens, happens. <laughs> well, Uriah's killed in the battle. Clearing the way for David to take Bathsheba as his wife and averting a scandal in the palace. And he thought, here's how funny it is, he thought he got away with it. Until Nathan the prophet, oh boy, shows up. And Nathan just comes, King, I've just come to tell you a story. I'll tell you a story about two men 
One of the men was very rich. He owned more lambs than he could count. The other man was very poor, dirt poor. He had one little lamb. In fact, it was a, a pet lamb, and he loved it. It was his closest companion. He, he slept you know, with that lamb by his side at night. And they went everywhere together. But one day, the rich man had a friend who came for dinner, and he was... He was hungry, and so when it was time for the meal to be prepared, the rich man walked past all of his pens, all of his corrals, where his thousands and thousands of lambs were. He walked past all of them, and he went to the poor man's house and took that one little lamb away from the poor man, and he slaughtered it and prepared it and fed it to his friend who was hungry. And David was outraged. He was incensed. That is so wrong, he said. I, I, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. I can't believe that took place. Nathan, I'm telling you, is that a true story? Did that happen here in my kingdom? Because somebody's going to pay. 2 Samuel 12, verses 5 and 6. It says, David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed. Any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. And then look at verse 7. And then Nathan said to David, You are that man. David, it was you. It was you. You're the hypocrite. You're the offender. Folks, listen, before you and I can run off and confront somebody, we better make sure that no one can point a finger at us and say, it was you. This is what Jesus was talking about when he makes this crazy statement in Matthew 7, verse 3. He says, why are you worried about a speck of sawdust in your friend's eye when you got like a telephone pole in yours. I mean, literally, that's, that's the sense of what he's saying. Sometimes it's translated beam or log, but the, the crowd would have kind of laughed. They would have kind of chuckled. It was a funny image that they would have gotten in their mind, just like we did. Jesus says, you know what you got to do is you got to take care of that log that's in your own eye before you worry about that speck. One of the healthiest things that a lot of us could do is, is turn in our spiritual policeman badge. Right? Resign our junior Holy Spirit commission. And stop jumping on people for things that don't matter and criticizing and confronting without love. And instead, get on our knees before God and say, God, where is the hypocrisy in me? Because I promise you, if you do that, if we do that, God will reveal some things to us. Some of us, it's like, hey, hey, I'm Christian guy. See my T-shirt? See my Bible? See my tattoo? I'm Christian guy. And you're looking at pornography every single day. Listen, man, I love you. I want to help you. But that's hypocrisy. We got to root that out. Or maybe your thing is, I'm a woman of God. I'm a Proverbs 31 woman. 
And yet everywhere you go, you disrespect your husband, you criticize him, and you pick him apart in public. It's bad enough you do it at home. I'm a Christian man. I love my family. And you're working yourself into the ground. Your kids barely know who you are. Oh, I'm a faithful church goer, and you've never given or served anywhere. I got all my doctrines correct. Yeah, and you're mean and judgmental. I'm filled with the Holy Ghost, and I pray in the Spirit. Yeah, and you're so critical and condemning that nobody can stand to be around you. You know why you got all that time to pray? Because nobody wants to be around you. When we point our finger at someone else, do not be surprised when God says, let me show you some hypocrisy in your life. Now listen to me very carefully here. This message is not designed and not intended to make you feel guilty or, or ashamed or to, or to make you angry. Well, you made me feel bad, Pastor Scott. No, I didn't. One me. No. This is one hungry beggar telling another one where the bread is. This is one <laughs> wandering, lost person saying, hey, I think I found the way. You know what happened when David realized that he was a, a hypocrite? The Bible says he tore his clothes. He laid down in the dirt. He laid down in the ashes from the fire. He, he poured dirt on his head. That was a very Middle Eastern way of saying, I am a horrible, awful person. I can't believe I've done this. I can't believe I've, I've stooped to this level. I'm lower, I'm literally lower than the dirt. That's what it was intended to express. But we can't live there. Christians, we can't live there. And David didn't live there either. In fact, he got up. The Bible says later that he got up, and he washed his face, he cleaned his clothes. And he said a prayer. He gave a very heartfelt prayer to God, and he wrote it down. It's recorded for us in Psalm 51. You really ought to take an opportunity to read that sometime this week. But just to key in on one verse in Psalm 51, verse 10, David said to the Lord, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. God, show me my own hypocrisy. Show me where I'm, where I'm falling short. Show me where my heart has drifted from you. And then, Lord, because I can't do it for myself, I can lay in the dirt and pour dirt on my head until you can't see, until I'm buried and you can't see me anymore. But that doesn't change anything. God, you can clean me up. You can renew me. You can make me new. God, I, I don't want my lips to say one thing and my life to say another. My heart be far from you. So please, God, only you can do it. Create a new heart in me. Because I'm one of them. I'm, I'm one of them. And listen, when we've done that, that's when we're ready to minister to them. That's when we're ready to help hurting Christians who are caught in sin or struggling with sin. That's when we're ready to help them find their way back and experience that same cleansing and same renewal. 
Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.